Happy Lord's Day. My name's Ross. I'm a member here at Bethany Baptist Church. It's an honor and a privilege to be bringing you guys God's word today. Because man must not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33. Once again, that's Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22. If this is the first time you're opening up a Bible, um, we do have a pew Bible or a black hardcover Bible in the seat in front of you. Um, Chapter 5 is the big number, and verse 22 is the small number. So big number 5, small number 22. It's going to be on page 1039. Hear God's words as he speaks to us now. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. To make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church. Since we are members of his body, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I'm speaking about Christ and the church. To sum up, Each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. May the word of the Lord dwell richly within us. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would be honored through the preaching of your word. We pray that you would help us to dependently and desperately listen to your word, knowing that we can do nothing apart from you. We pray that you would grow us in our love for you and our joy in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Some of you may not know me. Um, I'm Ross. Once again, I've been a member here for three years uh, at Bethany Baptist Church, class of 2018. If that's any of you guys, let's go. Uh, I met my wife here, actually, in 2019. I asked her to marry me in 2020. And on December 20th of 2020, I married my wife. Christine. Praise the Lord. Some of you, thanks, appreciate it, Angelique. Some of you may have heard this phrase before, and some of you know this to be very true. Marriage is one of the fast tracks to sanctification. Um, Some of you remember and know this to be dearly true. The first 
the first year of marriage is often times, but not always, the hardest year of marriage. For me and my wife, the first three months of marriage contained enough conflict to last us for the next three years of marriage. Every night at 9 p.m., like clockwork, my wife and I would have a three to five hour intense conversation um, regarding my sin or her sin. Some like to call this a fight. I call it a sanctifying conversation. Every night, four hours. Every night at nine o'clock for four hours, let's talk. Now, most of you may not have had four months long of four-hour conversations, um, but I hope that every one of you can sympathize with difficult conversations, with sanctifying conversations. If you're married, I know that you and your wife have had conflict. If you're working, I'm certain that you and your boss or you and your coworkers have had some sort of conflict. If you're a human being, I'm sure that you have conflict with your parents or you have conflict with your children. Friends, life is full of conflict, some more than others, but we can't escape conflict within our situations and within our relationships. At times, these conflicts make us feel alone. They make us feel hopeless. We feel lost and we don't know what to do next. But the one thing I love about Christianity is that we're not left alone to figure out life. God gives us his word. God gives us church family. God gives us Ephesians 5, verses 22 to 33, as instructions, as guidelines, as guardrails on how to live as a married couple. We aren't left in the dark. God has something to say regarding marriage, regarding how to be a wife and a husband. Friends, if you're not married, praise God that all of his word is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training. Friends, you may not be married now, but God may one day bless you with marriage. But God, some of you may never want to be married, but God still has things to say about marriage, and he still wants to teach you about marriage, not only for your sake, but also for those around you, so that you would know how to train, rebuke, correct, and teach them how to love their wives and how to submit to their husbands. God doesn't leave us in darkness, but gives us his word as light to our feet. With that said, the main goal today is that we would be filled, that we would be filled by the spirit in differing relationships. Once again, the main goal is be filled by the spirit in differing relationships. The two relationship roles or, and their commands are wives are to submit to their husbands. Secondarily, husbands are to love your wives. Once again, wives are to submit to their husbands and husbands are to love their wives. To understand why I'm getting this specific main goal of being filled by the spirit in differing relationships, we have to look at chapter 5 verse 15. Chapter 5, verse 15 commands us to pay attention to how we walk. And then if you go to verse 18, verse 18 tells us not be drunk with wine, but to be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another, making music in our hearts, giving thanks to the Lord, and submitting to one another. Those are general ways to be filled with the Spirit. Then Paul goes into specific ways to be filled with the Spirit according to differing roles. And that's what we're picking up in verse 22, and it's going to go from 22 all the way to chapter 6, 
verses 10. Paul just starts naming off different ways to be filled with the Spirit in specific relationship contexts. Now, there's a small disclaimer before we start this verse. We will be spending a good amount of time on verse 22. Um, if you look at the breakdown of the verses, wives get two verses here, 22 and 23, and the husbands get the rest of the nine verses. Yet I'm going to spend nearly an equal amount of time on wives and husbands, and that's because I think the cultural issues of today are different than the cultural issues of the past. Right? During this time, the cultural issue was that husbands were abusing their authorities and not loving their wives in a caring and tender way. Yet I think today, culturally, the idea of submission has become foreign. And so with that said, I'm going to spend uh, half the time on submission and half the time on husbands love your wives. Let's get into the verse. So point one, wives submit to your husbands. Let's read verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. So there's a few things I want to point out here in this verse. First, the command is not for wives to submit to men in general, Paul is specifically here talking about the relationship between a husband and a wife within the relationship of marriage. In marriage, there's a wife and a husband. The text doesn't say that husbands are to submit to wives, but that wives are to submit to husbands. Some of you may be thinking, but Ross, what about the verse right before that? Verse 21, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. I would say amen, God's word is true. Christians are to submit to one another in a general sense. But Paul clarifies that submission within the context of marriage. And it goes from wife to husband. Not only is it from wives to husband, but it's specifically to their husbands. But Jennifer, my sister, does not need to submit to me as her husband because I'm not her husband. In the same way, Christine doesn't need to submit to my brother-in-law in the husband and wife relationship. Right? It's specifically to your husband. Now, Second, Paul gives a reason or a comparison in verse 22. Right? He says that wives are to submit to their husbands as to the Lord. Wives are to submit to their husbands, wives are to submit to their husbands as or like or in the same way as in relation to their submission to the Lord. Let's think about submission. All right, John Piper defines submission as willingly coming under the authority of another. Every Christian has submitted willingly um, or every Christian has submitted or willingly submitted to the authority of the Lord. Right? We have said in our lives when we became a Christian that our lives are no longer our own. That we no longer possess authority over our lives that's greater than Jesus' authority. We once wanted to be in control of our lives. We once wanted control of authority in our lives. But when we became a Christian, we decided to submit our authority over Christ's authority and Jesus' authority and control over us. Okay, so if Jesus has absolute authority, how does the husband's authority relate to Jesus' authority? Christ has absolute authority, and he has given the husband's authorities over their wives. Wives are to submit to their husbands as their way of submitting to the Lord, and the Lord's authority. In conjunctions, wives must not submit to their husbands if he is commanding her to sin against God because they must submit to God's authority over their husband's authority. If I use my authority 
to lead my wife into sin. She is to reject my authority in submission to Christ's authority. If I tell Christine to rob a bank, she must reject my command of her there and rebuke me as a fellow Christian and beg Christ to not rob a bank. So what if my husband is sinning? So let's say I'm sinning, but I'm not leading Christine to sin. So I'm not necessarily commanding her to sin, but it's clear that I'm sinning and I'm doing something that is demonstrable and serious. What if I decided, or what if my husband's telling me that he's not going to work anymore and he's not going to provide for the family so that he can lay around and do nothing? And instead, he wants his wife to work. 1 Timothy 5.8 would say that he's denied the faith and he's worse than an unbeliever. But should the wife think that she's enabling his sin if, he, if she decides to submit and to work? Does that illustration make sense? Does that situation make sense? Yeah. Yes. Okay. So, wife, the husband's not commanding the wife to necessarily do anything, right? Instead, the wife is saying, the wife in his leadership is telling his wife to work and to provide for the family, though we know that it's the husband's role to work and provide the family, to carry that burden. And the husband's deciding consciously and saying that his motive is to sin by not working, is the wife, should the wife submit, is the question. The husband is sinning, but not necessarily leading the wife to sin. And the answer is there's complexity here. Right? This is why we need a church family. This is why we need pastors to help us walk through these questions. There's also, a, I think, six classes on marriage um, online that, Peter has, that PJ has taught. So if you guys want to look through that. But here's my general thoughts. If the sin is clear and outward, meaning that it's not internal in terms of motivation, but external in terms of um, something that's demonstrable and that people can look at and say, that's sin, she is to reject and rebuke and redirect her husband's command to work. In this situation, it's clear that outward sin, that his outward sin is that he stated that he doesn't want to work and provide, that he wants to do nothing and be lazy. That would warrant a rejection of his command or his, his binding of her conscience to work. Now, she may still choose to work as a way of providing for her children, but she would not be sinning in her submission to her husband's command, even if she does decide to work. She's rejecting his authority or his command on her life to work, and she may still choose to work under the understanding that she wants to provide for her family if her husband doesn't. Okay, so that's one category, right? The first category is husbands commanding the wives to sin. That's always reject. The second category is husbands commanding their wives to sin, not commanding their wives to sin, but in their command, they're sinning, and their wives aren't sinning. What are the wives supposed to do? They're supposed to work and talk to church family, work through the complexities of the situation. And the third category is what if, you're, what if you think, as a wife, that your husband has a sinful motivation as he's leading you to do something? All right, for example, what if I want to move my family to San Diego, yet Christine thinks that my desire, my motivation for moving to San Diego is because of idolatry, because I want to fulfill the American dream, because I desire wealth more than I desire treasures in heaven. Is Christine to move with me to San Diego? Does Christine submit to my leadership or not? I mean, I think the answer here would be yes. 
The lack of clarity regarding whether or not I'm sinning leads me to say yes. Right? As the wife, of course, Christine would want to counsel me and try to convince me and expose the sin within my heart. And yes, she'd want to talk to church family about this decision. However, by the end of the day, if I don't think I'm sinning and she still thinks I am, I would encourage wives in this specific situation to submit for a few reasons. One, because love believes all things. Right? Be quick not to trust in your own diagnosis of someone's motives because we're not God and we don't know if they're, we don't know with certainty what their motives are. My general disposition towards people is to trust them and to believe what they're saying unless there's a concrete reason why I shouldn't. Two, wives, Wives, my encouragement to you is that time will tell whether or not you were right and he was wrong. Praise God that you don't need to be in control, that God is control, that sin will reveal itself, and God is good. If your wife, if your husband loves the Lord, he will continue to grow. His sin will find him out. He will stand before God in judgment for his sin. You can rest in God in the midst of uncertainty because there is certainty in God. Okay, so with all that said, that's all under the category of sinful leadership, right? So what are wives to do? Like the command is, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Does that mean everything? And we kind of clarify that if your husband is sinning, these are three scenarios that can happen, right? So let's move on to the second category. As a wife, if my husband commands me to sin, I reject that. We've kind of established that. If my wife... Okay, so first category, sinful leadership. Second category, worthy leadership. Right? It's clear what to do in worthy leadership. We submit to the worthy leadership. We support worthy leadership. And the last category here is foolish leadership. Right? So sinful leadership, foolish, worthy leadership. And the last category is foolish leadership. Do wives submit to their husbands in foolish leadership? I would agree that they, I would argue that they do. Foolish leadership is different than sinful leadership because sinful leadership goes against the authority of Jesus. Foolish leadership, though it's dumb, doesn't go against the authority of Jesus. This is where we have to be clear what sin is and what is wise or unwise. Sin is going against God's demands. While being unwise is not living in light of reality. Oftentimes, a lack of wisdom can lead to sin but a lack of wisdom is not necessarily sin. A husband who struggles with pornography, going on his phone late at night, home alone, without any content blockers, may be extremely foolish. But he hasn't yet sinned. It would be wrong to demand a husband to not go on his phone late at night anymore because God doesn't make that demand of him. God demands that he does not lust after another woman and go on his phone and going on his phone may lead him to lust after another woman, but going on his phone is not sinful. That's not an action that God prescribed. Don't go on your phone. Right? The Pharisees did a similar thing. Right? The Pharisees knew that not keeping the Sabbath was sinful. And so what they did was they set up all these other wise rules so that no one would break the Sabbath. Yet the Pharisees treated those wise rules as God's rules, and that was legalism. 
right? Those aren't God's rules, those wise rules that the Pharisees made up. They're actually the Pharisees' rules. In a similar way, your rules or your precautions or wisdom that you set up aren't as important as God's rules. If, you, if, your, wisdom, if your wise expectations and demands are not God's expectations and demands, it's legalism to equate the two. A lack of wisdom is not sin. Therefore, wives are not to reject foolish leadership, but to submit to foolish leadership. Now, I know that sounds hard, and I can easily be in, un, misinterpreted here. Wives are not to passively submit to foolish leadership. They are to redirect, disciple, gospelize, and teach their husbands in their foolish leadership. They are to call out foolishness, yet have a posture of submission. It's easy to submit to worthy leadership because oftentimes worthy leaderships are things that wives agree with. It's, if a wife disagrees with something, most of the time it's because they think their husbands are sinning or because they think their husbands are foolish in this decision. Understandably. Yet, what, happen, what might happen is that if a wife always rejects what they seem to be foolish or a leadership they disagree with, have they really submitted to their husbands? If a wife never submits to something they disagree with and only with what they agree with, have they really just been submitting to themselves the whole time? Submitting to leadership you disagree with actually requires you to submit. If you've always agreed with your husband and always submitted to him under an agreement, I'm not sure if you've ever submitted to your husband or if your submission has been to yourself the whole time. Submission in non-sinful disagreements show that a wife is putting themselves under their husband's authority. And that's a scary place to be. I mean, to submit to something you disagree with is difficult and it's scary. But yet, it's a good place to be. It shows that a wife is submitting because he's doing it, because she's doing it in obedience to Christ, as to the Lord. They're trusting that God's commands are good for her, and that it's good to obey God even when they disagree with their husbands. Now, husbands, this is not a pass for you to be foolish. You and I will stand before God for every foolish use of our authority for every sinful use of our authority. In 1 Peter 3, husbands are commanded to live with their wives in an understanding way, showing them honor, or your prayers will be hindered. And Peter pushes this further and explains that the face of the Lord is against those who do what's evil, namely, husbands using their authority to suppress and abuse their wives. The face of the Lord is against you if you abuse your wives with your authority. Husbands, this is a serious call Paul's giving us. So wives are to reject sinful leadership, submit and redirect foolish leadership, and support and nurture worthy leadership. So wives of Bethany Baptist Church, do you redirect and support your husbands? Is discipling your husband a thought that comes into your mind often? Do you think about how to support and redirect his leadership in ways that honor the Lord? To, marry, to not yet married women who desire marriage. As you're looking for a husband, choose to marry one 
that you are going to willingly submit to, even when you disagree with them. Look for a man who doesn't abuse his leadership, one who selflessly and humbly serves as a means of his leadership. Honestly, sisters, submission when you disagree, especially to a foolish husband, is hard. And I'm sure my wife can attest to that. Look for someone you're willing to submit to. Now, there's two ways that Satan can leave wives astray. On one side, wives can submit to their husbands begrudgingly and with bitterness. Satan can tempt wives, Satan can tempt wives to begrudgingly obey God and to grow at bitterness at their husband's foolishness. God and your husband want a joyful submission. Right? It's the act of submission, submitting, and the attitude of submitting. It's the act of submission, but not only the act of submission, but the attitude of submission. Do you have an attitude of submission, understanding the differing roles God's put you in? Or is authority and submission that something that makes you cringe? So that's one side. On the other side, Satan can tempt wives into passivity. Wives can mindlessly submit, carelessly submit. They can go through the motions of submission. Your husbands need not only your mindless, passive submission, but they need your input to lead well. They need you as their wives. They are actually incomplete without you. They can't lead you without understanding your feelings, your thoughts, and your desires in a situation. Wives, did you know that you can disciple your husbands in a way that no one else can? Your joyful and thoughtful submission disciples your husbands in ways I never can. I can't disciple Jimmy the way Barbara can. I'm not his wife. There's an angle of discipleship that Barbara has with Jimmy that no one else has. And it's a privilege and an honor that only wives have to their husbands. All right, so that was a lot on submission. As to the Lord, let's look back down at verse 23. Because the husband is the head of the, of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, he is the savior of the body. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Okay, we understand verse 23 to be the reason for submission because Paul here starts with the word because. Because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of their husbands, Paul here is appealing to the reality of marriage. And the roles within this marriage, right? Christ in the church. Paul is saying, and comparing these two realities here, Paul is saying, here's Christ in the church, and here's husbands and wives. Christ is the head of the church, and Christ has authority over the church. Christ leads the church. The husband, in a similar way, is the head of the wife. The husband has authority over the wife and leads the wife. Paul appeals to the realities of marriage. The husband is the head and the wife is the body. You can live as if there is no differing relationships, but that's foolish. What wisdom is living in, in light of reality and in light of God's design. God has designed for the man to be the head and as Christ is the head. God has given 
husband's authority over and leadership over of the wife. A marriage can decide to do it their own way. But Paul is saying, wives, you should submit to your husbands because he is the head and you are the body, whether or not you believe it to be true. And really, in some sense, it's understandable for wives not to want to not want to want wives to not want to submit to their husbands. I mean, that's the curse in Genesis 3, right? The curse is that the woman's desire will be for their husband, yet he will rule over her. She is going to want to be the ruler and go against her design as the helper. And Paul wants you to live in light of the truth, in light of the design of God. Let's look back down at the next sentence. He is the savior of the body. Now, who is the he here? Is he Christ or the husband or both? I mean, the sentence structure in the ESV gives us clarity on who is the savior of the body. Listen to the ESV. For the husband is the head of the church, head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Right? Christ is the savior of the body. And it's further clarified in the next verse. So if you're looking back down in verse 24, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Now, Paul's completing the logic of his argument here. Like we've established, husbands are the head, like Christ is the head. Wives are the body, as the church is the body. If the church submits to Christ, so then also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Now, there's some boundaries here in terms of in everything, like we've established before. This doesn't mean that the husband's authority is over, the, over God's authority, and we always obey God over man, yet the word here is still in everything. Even when my husband is foolish, in everything? Even when I disagree with him, in everything? Even when he might have a sinful motive, in everything? If you thought that I broadened the scope of submission to include foolishness, I think Paul does something similar here in everything. Sisters, if you're listening to this and it makes you not want to get married anymore, um, I, I kind of understand. Uh, <laughs> in my limitedness, I could never completely understand the burden of submission to a foolish husband. I'm not a wife. I'm a husband. And yet, even in my imagination of how that feels, I'm hesitant. That sounds difficult and borderline unreasonable. Yet there's one sentence here that brings us hope in this situation. Christ is the savior of the body. Wives, your submission to your husband is rooted in your submission to Christ as to the Lord. And Christ is the savior of the body. He is our savior. He is good and lovely and he is a gentle savior. His commands are good for us, even when they seem difficult. But difficult isn't bad. It's just difficult. And I know that your husbands can feel more like Satan than Christ at times. But imagine if there was no difficulties and no trials. Praise God for trials that we can rejoice in. 
Praise God for difficulties that grow our trust in God. Wives, I praise God for you, for your submission to your husbands, which echoes the submission of Christ in the church. Listen to 1 Peter 3 and the glories of God's design in submission. This is what we read earlier today. In the same way, wives, submit yourself to your own husbands so that even if some disobey the word, they may be won over without a word by the way their wives live. When they observe your pure, reverent lives, don't let your beauty consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles and wearing gold jewelry or fine clothes, but rather what is inside the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For in the past, the holy women who put their hope in God also adorned themselves in this way, submitting to their own husbands. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, you have become her children when you do what is good and do not fear any intimidation. Did you hear that? The holy woman in the passage adorned themselves with a gentle and quiet spirit, submitting to their husbands. That was their gold jewelry and fine clothing. That was their elaborate hairstyle. Their gentle and quiet spirit, their submission was of great worth in God's sight. They won their husbands over without a word, without a word by the way they lived. My goal for you sisters is that you would taste and see the goodness of submission, not of begrudging or passive submission, but one that is thoughtful, gentle, speaking the truth in love, yet an attitude of submission that's rooted in submission to Christ. When a husband knows that their wives is a is their cheerleader before they deserve to be cheered on? There's this confidence in them that's grown to lead. Wives, sisters, we need, your, we need you to embrace your role as the helper so that we can embrace our role as the leader. I can't lead well without my wife's thoughtful, intentional, gentle, loving attitude of submission and support. Now, last thing before we move on to the husbands. There is, an, there is a glorious effect wives have on their husbands when their joy in the Lord and their submission to their husband is steadfast, even when everyone knows that the husband is being foolish. Your steadfast, immovable joy in the Lord and clearness in your disagreement Yes, submissive spirit, knowing that submission to God's command is good for you, actually displays the glories of marriage. Do you want to disciple your husbands towards Jesus? Embrace your God-given role. Thoughtfully and joyously submit to your husband. Okay, so that's point one. Wives, submit to your husbands. Point two. Husbands, love your wives. Starting in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Okay, there's the command. Husbands, love your wives. Now again, 
This is not to every wife, but to your wife. So to what degree should husbands love their wives? To the degree or just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Brothers, you thought the command to wives was difficult. Your command is to love your wife just as Christ loved the church and died for her. Brothers, we need to be repenting often. Now, the conjunction just as functions as a comparison and also a ground. The husband's love for his wife is compared to Christ's love. Christ's love models our love for our wives. Christ's love is the ground, is a reason why husbands are to love their wives. Husbands are to love their wives because Christ loved the church to the point of death. Christ has given us authority over our wives, and he has given us the responsibility to love our wives. We are to love because Christ loves. Look at verse 26 and 27. To make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. Christ gives two reasons here and two purposes, or two reasons or two purposes. First, the purpose of Christ loving the church is to make her holy, which is what we see in verse 26. Right, the, whole, the word holy here means to be set apart or to be sanctified or to be to sanctify. The ESV translates it like this, that he might sanctify her. Both make her holy and sanctify her have the common understanding of being set apart to God. So how does God set apart the church to himself? He does this by cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. Now, when I first read this, I thought washing of water might have been baptism, like, like what we saw last week of Lane. Yet nowhere in the Bible is the whole church as a corporate church baptized, right? So it most likely doesn't mean baptism in terms of physical water baptism. I think what it most likely means here in terms of washing of the water is spiritual washing, not baptism. And we see in 1 John 1, 7, there's a similar idea here of spiritual washing, right? But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Paul's thinking along the same lines here, right? Jesus cleanses us with his blood by his word. So what is the word here? The word is the word of the gospel. In 1 John 17, 17, when John 17, 17, Jesus prays for his disciples, Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. The word of the gospel is the means by which he pours out his grace, and it is the means by which we are cleansed. Okay, so we're going to wrap up the first purpose. Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, up for him or for her to make her sanctified or holy by cleansing her, not with baptism, but with spiritual washing through the word of the gospel. Think about this. When we heard the word, of the gospel, when we believed in the word and turned from our sins, we were cleansed from our sins, from our filth, and made holy and distinct. We are set apart for God. Namely, we become a part of the church, which is made holy through the cleansing and washing of water by the word. Okay, so that's the first purpose. The second purpose of Jesus' love is found in verse 27. He did this to present the church to himself 
in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but or contrasting with spot and wrinkle is holy and blameless. The first purpose is to make the church holy. The second purpose is to present the holy church to himself. Going to verse 28. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. Jesus loved his own body. So husbands ought to love as Jesus loves. Paul exhorts husbands and wives to look at the reality of the situation. Your wife is your body. Christ loved and gave himself for his body. And he continues in verse 28, he who loves his wife loves himself. Why? In verse 29, for no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. All right, verse 30, 31 clarifies the reality Paul has been speaking about throughout this whole verse, throughout this whole section. This reality that husbands and wives are one is found at the beginning of time. A man leaves his father and his mother and is joined to his wife. The two actually become one flesh. Wives submitting to their husbands, husbands loving their wives, this is not fundamentally a cultural norm created because of social constructs today. Rather, roles within marriage are established at creation. The wife's role as the helper and supporter stems from the fundamental design of God. The husband as the leader, provider, and protector stems from the fundamental design of God. So what does this mean for husbands? Husbands, you are to love and give yourselves to your wife in leading as the head, in providing and caring as Christ provided and cared, as the one who protects and the one who protects his own body. I mean, so that's the husband's primary burden is to lead, protect, and to provide. Now, it doesn't mean the, the wife doesn't lead, protect, or provide. We're just saying the primary burden is on the husband. Nowhere in this passage does it command why husbands to force their wife into submission. Now, it doesn't mean that you don't lead your wife and disciple your wife regarding submission. Yet leading and discipling your wife is far different than forcing submission upon her. The call is to love your wife by leading, protecting, and providing for her. By caring for her. I mean, I'm personally guilty of a lack of love, even this week. It's far easier for me to care for my wife only in action, but not in emotion. I've had to ask my wife for forgiveness multiple times throughout our marriage, and she's had to call me out for my lack of love. It's easy for me personally to go through the motions of love, but to have no desire or joy in my love. Yet this is emotionless, mindless, this emotionless, mindless, going through the motion love is not what the text commands of us husbands. Husbands are commanded to love your wife like Christ loved the church. Christ's love for the church isn't emotionless. Jesus didn't just go through the motions. Rather, Jesus' love for the church is affectionate and warm. Christ, that's, husbands, that's Christ's call for you. Repent for the areas of your life where your love is cold and ask God for a heart that loves like Christ does. Husbands, repent often. Pray often for a heart that doesn't partially obey Christ's commands. 
but completely. Husbands, if you leave with this takeaway of, oh, dang, I messed up. I I need to do better. I'm going to try harder this week. You've missed the point. The weird thing about emotions is that you can't force it. You can't manufacture it. You can't hear this message and think, I'm going to love my wife now. I'm going to feel affection for her. Trust me, your wife notices when you're earnest, yet your love is cold. Your wife can has a sense of your earnesty or your, of your earnestness, but that doesn't take away from the fact that she senses that you're going through the motions. This Christ-like love for your husband cannot be compelled by yourself. You can't compel yourself into Christ-like love. Emotions and a lack of absolute control of our emotions actually forces us to acknowledge Jesus as our Savior. Our need for him is manifested. It's shown through our inability to control and obey this command without him. Praise God, he's, praise God Jesus gave himself up for us. Husbands, love your wives with a Christ-like love, one that you can't conjure. Repent for your lack of love and ask God for a heart that loves as he loves. Blessed are those who ask, for they shall receive. Brothers in the church who are not yet married and desiring marriage. Marriage doesn't magically make you a good leader. It's not a magic pill. It does make you a leader. It does actually fundamentally make you a leader of a household with all the responsibility and accountability for God. But it doesn't make you a good one. If you're not leading others towards Jesus today, if you're not discipling others towards Jesus today, if you're not convincing others with the truth, marriage isn't magically going to change that. Now, the trials of marriage is going to force you to grow in discipling and leading. But brothers, you can grow in leading today. Learn how to use your words to convince people of the truth with a steady trust in God, knowing that his timing is better than yours. I'm rarely telling my wife to do something, like enforcing my authority on her. Most of the time, I'm discipling my wife with the truths of God's word. I'm using truth to expose sin in her life, to expose her of areas in her life where she needs to grow. That's the way I've decided to lead. And I'm not prescribing that for everyone. But I think it's like any other Christian. I want the truth of God's word to move them and not my authority or demandingness. So not yet married brothers who want to be married, disciple and lead others around you towards Jesus today. Grow in that ability for the sake of your future wife if God would bless you with one. Okay, we're going to finish off with one last point found in verse 32. This mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ in the church. What? Is anyone else confused about this verse? In what sense is a, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one, talking about Christ in the church? I mean, I thought we've established this whole time that this is talking about marriage, right? Marriage between a husband and a wife. Well, this only makes sense when you think about the mystery throughout the whole book of Ephesians. Right, the boy Paul uses mystery here is not the same way we might think of the word mystery used. I mean, a mystery is not like Sherlock Holmes solving a case. Rather, the word mystery 
in the book of Ephesians is something that has been hidden for the ages and now being revealed. All right, we see that in Ephesians 1 verse 9. He has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time. So what's the mystery? To bring together, to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. And then the mystery is expanded in chapter 2 verse 1 to 10, which Reggie's preaching on tonight. The mystery is that we were once children of wrath, but Christ took on our wrath and saved us. He united us with him, and we are raised with him. We are seated with him in the heavenly places, and we are in him. Not only is this a vertical reality, but it's actually a horizontal one. We are in Christ just as the Jews are. We are we, were the, we are the uncircumcised, ones who are excluded from Israel, ones, unless you're an Israelite, um, foreigners to the covenant of promise. But we were brought near by the blood of Christ. The wall of hostility is brought down in Christ's flesh. He not only reconciled us to God, but also to each other. We, the Gentiles and the Jews, are made one in Christ. This oneness is found in Christ in God's manifold wisdom that is made known through the church to the rulers and the authority. So that's the mystery that Paul's been talking about this whole time. If you start thinking about this mystery from chapter 5, it can quickly become confusing. But if you start from the beginning of Ephesians and understand that the mystery is Christ and the church and now how they're one, then verse 32 makes more sense. This is what Paul's been saying all along. Christ and the church are one. They are united. And the unity of a man and woman are a shadow, a reflection of the marriage or the oneness of Christ and the church. That's why Christina are married. Tell death do us apart. I am not married to Christine in the new heaven and new earth. The church will be married to Christ. My marriage is a reflection of that marriage. We, the church, is the bride of Christ. And on that day, there will be a marriage feast of the Lamb. Now, look at verse 32 again. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one. Can you think of a man who left his father to be joined to his wife or bride? If you're thinking Jesus, that's correct. Jesus left his father, took on flesh, lived the life you and I should have lived, died on the cross for the sins you and I have committed so that he could be one with his bride, the church. Now, don't take this too far. God is not a mother, but Jesus did leave his wife to win a bride for himself. If you're not a Christian today, this is the Bible's main message to you. This is our church's main message to you. We have all disregarded God in our lives. We have not acknowledged him. God is the creator and the one who sustains our lives. Yes, we disregard him. We refuse to acknowledge him. We sin against him. Therefore, God rightfully judges us for our sins. Yet in love, he sends his one and only son to live the perfect life you and I should have lived and died the death you and I deserve to die. And on the third day, he rose again, showing that his payment for sin was acceptable by God. God, right now, if you're not a Christian, 
is calling you to turn from your sins and turn to Jesus. He is calling you to give up your life, to admit that you need him, to turn from yourself and give all of yourself to him. Jesus said, if anyone is willing to follow me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross and follow me. Because what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? Children, look at me, children. Any good, any sweetness, anything you enjoy that you see from your mommy and daddy's marriage is actually a reflection, a picture of Jesus and the church. Did you know that your mommy and daddy's marriage point to Jesus and the church? It's like, look, 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 look at that. Look at that. Your mommy and daddy's marriage actually reflects Christ and the church. To the widows. My heart hurts thinking about the pain and grief of the death of a loved one. The death of my wife, the death of my other half. Yeah, brothers and sisters, there's hope. There's a greater marriage to come. There will be a bride, and Christ will be our groom. To the singles, I want to personally commend you for the ways that you've supported the marriages in our church. You have done such a good job bearing our burdens. You have done such a good job discipling us. It's a privilege for us to have you a part of our marriage. And here's the final call. One of the most helpful things in my marriage this year has been reminding my wife and I that we are sucky husbands and wives. Husbands, aren't we all just so sucky? We have failed to love our wives as Christ loved the church. Our hearts are often cold and disengaged. We neglect God's demands in our lives. Wives, aren't you sucky wives? You have failed to submit to your husband as to the Lord. You decided to thoughtlessly, passively submit to your husbands out of duty and not out of joy. You have not had an attitude of submission. As Christians, we are sucky, aren't we? We fail in our submission to Christ as the bride. We know that God's commands are good for us. We know that he's for our good, yet our hearts are so cold to his commands. We functionally reject Christ as the head of the church. We decide that we want to do things our way. We chafe against Christ. Our hearts are cold. But praise God that we don't have a sucky Savior. That our Savior is not sucky. He is the one man who always loves the church perfectly. He always loves us perfectly. He always perfectly submitted to the Father and submits to the Father. Yet he was treated as unholy. He was not cleansed by water. Instead, he was spit on, beaten, and mocked. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, he, Jesus, presents us as holy and blameless. Us sucky Christians, we are disobedient, yet he is punished. Therefore, we, brothers and sisters, we are the body of Christ. We are one with Christ. The reminder of our suckiness brings us back to the gospel. We ought not to realize our suckiness and try to fix ourselves. 
but rather we ought to cling to Christ who loves us even when we suck. We are free to go to God, to turn from our sins, to repent because Jesus loves his body and gave himself for her. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you, Jesus, we thank you that you left the Father, took on flesh to live the life that we, just, we needed to live and to die the death that we deserved and that we have eternal life through your death and your resurrection. Lord, we thank you for the Lord's Day. We thank you that you rose on a Sunday. And then now Christians throughout the world and throughout the century have gathered on the Lord's Day to worship you. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.